Welcome to The Naked True. Peace to you. Let's pick up where we left off. We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 28. So let's begin now with verse 1. It's the last chapter in this book. Um, and there's only a little bit of what Jesus has to say in it. So we'll probably get through it pretty quickly. So without further ado, here we go. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. So it's saying the first day of the week, so that implies that it must be Monday, but it could be Sunday since, you know, we calendars do start out on Sunday. Some calendars, some calendars start out on Monday. Some religions say Saturday is your holy day. Some religions say Sunday is your holy day. Some religions say Wednesday is your holy day. Some religions just require that you have one day off per week. And I think that's the point of it is to remember not to work yourself to death, no matter what day your um, rest day is. But Nonetheless, this is past the Sabbath, past that day of rest, and it's now on to the regular uh, work, a regular week. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So you have something supernatural occurring. After, this is after the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. You see the um, it's at his tomb, the cave with the stone rolled against it, where all of this is happening. And an angel has appeared and rolled away the stone from the door, the entrance to the cave where Jesus is. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. So um, when it says countenance, it basically means his, uh, the appearance of his face. Um, and when it says like lightning, I don't think it means that like you're looking up in the sky and see it. I think it means it's full of light, brightness, luminescence. And his clothing as white as snow, sort of like glowing white um filled with light from within it seems to be is what it's implying and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men so you see here the guards who've been watching the the, the tomb since jesus was crucified and well since he was buried after the crucifixion are now terrified at what's going on but they're also witnessing what's happening the angel so they weren't asleep the angel answered and said to the women do not be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who is crucified. So now the angel is addressing the women. The women have been the most faithful of all the disciples from the beginning to the crucifixion, even up to the crucifixion and the denial in the garden and all of that, the betrayals, all of that. The women were the most faithful um, all the way, including his mama, Mary, but also one of his disciples named Mary and others. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. So the angel's letting them know, uh, Jesus ain't here. He's risen, just like he told you he would. And also, see for yourself the place where you know you buried him. So you know, or you know he was buried. So you know it's not stories being made up. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you in the Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So this lets us know a couple other things. It's not the disciples who took him away. Otherwise, why would the women need to go and let them know that Jesus is already gone from the tomb? Whether he's risen or stolen away or whatever the case may be, we know that the disciples couldn't have did it. The disciples lost their nerve at the arrest of Jesus and forsook him and fled. So it's highly unlikely that the disciples would suddenly gather the cojones to go there to the tomb and steal away the body while it's being guarded by the Romans. It makes no sense. 
to believe that narrative, but you know, it's out there. So the angel's letting him know, go and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And not only that, he's going to appear to you again, just like he told you he would. And he's saying, now I've told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. So the women got the message. They're being obedient. They're carrying it forward. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. So they're on their way being obedient to what the divine has instructed them to do. And while they're on their way in obedience, they get a miracle. They get a supernatural occurrence. Maybe that's the underlying message for us when we're seeking our paths or at least seeking signs along our paths that we're on the right paths and looking for them from God. Perhaps this is the sign of us that it, to be obedient and stay on that uh, thin and narrow path, not the broad way. But, and along the way, you'll see Jesus show up for us in different ways, just like he's showing up for the women who've been obedient on the path they were assigned to. And he's given them a message to rejoice. So be glad, rejoice, celebrate, be happy. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So now Jesus himself has appeared to the women who were faithful and sort of rewarded their faithfulness and also given them a message to carry forward to the rest of the disciples, the brethren, um, that they are also going to see an appearance from them. Maybe they aren't seeing it at the same time because they weren't as faithful as the women were. Maybe not, but it seems to me that would make sense. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. So the guards ran back and told it too. not just the women, but the guards who were watching the tomb went back to their authorities and reported to them the events. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. So notice where the religious people's mind and heart is at, where their actions are. Once again, focusing on money, focusing on controlling the narrative, and focusing on deceit, unfortunately. Because that's what it seems they're focused on. They're worried about consulting together and making sure that they use financial means to keep the narrative uh, going, the one that they choose, rather than the truthful unfolding of events. Even if they don't know what they are, at the very least, wouldn't you just want witnesses to be honest so you can get to the root? of what happened, not just have people chime in with lies to distort the picture of what happened, sort of like uh, the last four or five years, probably sort of like the whole American history, a history of America, especially when it comes to its treatment of black people, slavery and all of that. Changing what actually happened, the history to contort to some phony story narrative that's being put out there so that people's consciences will be eased and they won't feel too bad about what uh, being where they are on the backs of people who they basically robbed of where they could be saying tell them his disciples came at night and stole them away while we slept so that's the story that the religious folks are putting into the mouth of the guards telling them to go ahead with this story we're giving you. Go ahead and tell them this lie that we're making up that suddenly his disciples gathered, had the balls to rally themselves, get their nerve together and wait till the, 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 the guards were asleep and then suddenly sneak in, roll away the stone and steal away the body while they're, they must have been really, really heavy with sleep. And that would mean all of them were heavy with sleep or drunk or distracted 
dereliction of duty, no matter how you look at it. Um, and highly unlikely also, because again, where are the disciples suddenly find the nerve to do all of that when they didn't even have the nerve to stand with him when he was arrested? That'd be Jesus, I'm saying. Didn't have the nerve to stand with Jesus when he was arrested. But suddenly now you're to believe that they had the nerve and the, the, uh, the courage to go and steal his body away while the tomb is being guarded. It makes no sense. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So the religious people are telling them, we'll give you cover, sort of like the same way religion covers the political now. The religious turns the head of the political to keep the head of the people, the mind of the people, dumbed down with false narratives and basically lies and fairy tales. And one of the ways you know this is all intentional and planned out is that the same story they're telling them to go forward with that his disciples came and stole them away is the exact same narrative if you flip back one chapter in chapter 27 it's the same narrative they were afraid would happen in the first place is why they got the guard in the first place because we'll read it matthew 27 64 therefore command that the tomb is the religious people talking to the governor the one who held the trial of jesus therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people he's risen from the dead so the last deception will be worse than the first Pilate says to them you have a guard go your way make it as secure as you know how. So we know that that doesn't even make sense by their own storytelling ability. It doesn't make sense by the, the turn of events. The whole reason they got the guard from the Romans was to prevent the disciples from cooking up a story that he'd been resurrected, stealing away the body and then telling the people he'd been resurrected and fooling the people with an even bigger, as they call it, lie than his whole ministry as they called it a lie, even though they never once actually pointed out any case where he was lying. Um, so, you know, this is a lie because that was the whole point of why they got guards in Matthew 28, 14 is so that they would not have people changing the narrative and stealing the body and changing the narrative. Yet that's exactly what they turn right back to. And they're saying, don't worry about the governor. If he squawks about this, we got we know what to say to him to shut him up. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So it's saying that that story, that narrative of the disciples suddenly finding the courage and finding the right moment when the guards were so drunk or asleep or out of it, that they could also find the nerve, then find that moment, then roll away the stone and also steal away the body and make a clean getaway without any of that being noticed by the guards overnight and just seems highly highly unlikely yet yeah, that's the story they're running with then the 11 disciples went away into galilee to the mountain which jesus had appointed for them so you see the disciples now are being obedient to the word not from from jesus but delivered by the uh the the disciples of jesus the female disciples of jesus the women who'd already seen him i think there's another hidden message for us there that when we're being obedient it's not just to the words it is to the words of jesus but it's to the words of jesus wherever they may come from as long as they're still his words then there's nothing wrong it's only right to follow them whether it's from jesus one of his disciples one of the female disciples or even a modern day disciple of jesus as long as it's still jesus's words then there's nothing wrong with hearing it heeding it and following it because it's still his message it's just the messenger may change but the message stays the same when they saw him, they worshiped him, 
but some doubted. So now they've met Jesus on the mountain in Galilee, just like he told them to. And now they've seen him. But even in seeing him, some of them doubted, probably because seeing someone die is a very powerful, powerful uh, moment. It's something very hard to overcome. If you see someone die, whether by natural means or, you know, is taken out, it's very hard to imagine that person up and around, walking around, talking, breathing, and everything again. So it, it's understandable why they would doubt that he resurrected. But if you see him walking there with you, it's understandable that you may even doubt that too. But at the same time, he's right there with you. And this also, the whole doubting thing may also point to, I think it's the book of Luke. It might be one of the other gospels where after Jesus resurrected and appeared to the disciples, I think it's John, um, they didn't recognize him on the road to Emmaus. I think it is Luke, actually. That They didn't recognize him even though he walked and talked with them, and they didn't know him until he uh, basically said grace, uh, broke bread, uh, said grace over it, blessed it, and shared it with them. Then they knew him, and he vanished, according to that narrative, from their sight. Only then did they recognize him. So maybe that's why some are doubting here, because somehow Jesus's appearance has also changed in the resurrection, sort of like a reincarnation, the way Elijah reappeared in the New Testament as John the Baptist, at least that's according to Jesus, um, or, but appeared differently physically. So people didn't recognize him necessarily, not that they would recognize John the Baptist anyway, since there's a whole different era. But I think you understand what I'm saying. The there seems to be a reincarnation element. Um, the reincarnation element seems to also provide for a change in the physical appearance that makes the people who are reincarnated unrecognizable, immediately unrecognizable to those who knew them. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus, Jesus has now appeared to the disciples. He's letting them know at this point, um, well, he didn't say now. He's saying all authority has been given them in heaven and on earth. So it doesn't mean necessarily since the crucifixion. It may have been from the beginning. Not sure. But he's, he's letting the disciples know and letting us know that he's all powerful. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this is one of the instances where Jesus is like the only one in the Gospels where Jesus um, well, it may be another couple of places where it's said that he tells them to go and baptize, but this is one of the specific places where it's um, verbatim Jesus telling them to go baptize. I mean, like he might have sent them out in other Gospels or other points in the Gospels, and they had, did do teaching, preaching, healing, baptizing, exercising, and all of that stuff. But this is one of the, the cases where it's quoting Jesus as telling them to go out and baptize. But he tells them not to just baptize in Jesus's name, but to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and to me, that's significant because it's, um, I think he's saying to be perfect. Like he tells us in Matthew 5, 48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's, I don't think what he's telling us here is that you have to be baptized to have salvation. I think what he's saying to set that perfect example for that salvation, people should be baptized just as he was baptized. And um, and one other thing about that, um, all the people who did get baptized around Jesus at the time of Jesus, Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptisms according to the, the gospel narratives. 
his disciples did the baptizing, John the Baptist did the baptizing, but Jesus didn't actually baptize anyone. And I think that's probably a really good thing because if he had for history, all through history, people would probably exalt those people who actually had Jesus baptize them as somehow being elevated above everyone else, which of course, I mean, who wouldn't think that if you had the Lord himself baptize you physically? But um, so I think that's probably why that was avoided. But whatever the case may be, we know that being baptized isn't a necessity for salvation because of what happened on the cross in, was it? I think it's Luke, it's also Luke, where um, one of the people who are, are uh, crucified with Jesus has sort of a la uh, 11th hour conversion, a last, the fourth inning, whatever they, the a last minute change of heart, where he realizes that Jesus actually is the savior, he's the real deal. And he, um, he uh, converts basically into Christianity, even though it wasn't really called that back then yet. But he becomes a believer and he doesn't have time to get down off the cross. He's about to die. Jesus and the person crucified with him. And he tells the person crucified with him to assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me. Not today you'll see me there, but today you will be with me in paradise. And there's a difference. Some preachers will twist that and say, today I will see you in paradise. He didn't say that. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And I mention that because that lets the guy on the cross know, the other person who's crucified with him, that no, lets us know, you don't have to be baptized to have salvation. Otherwise, that person wouldn't have made it to that same paradise. It lets us also know that Jesus tells us in Luke 16, Luke is a very good, probably my favorite gospel book, because it's so informative about so many different elements of the world, especially the supernatural world, but also uh, lots of things. Luke is probably my favorite gospel. But anyway, I think it's letting us know there he didn't get down off the cross and be baptized, yet he still made it to that salvation or at least that paradise. And Luke, The book of Luke also lets us know, according to Jesus, when he gives us in Luke 16, the example of two people who pass away at the same time, Lazarus and the rich man. Both of them pass away, and yet one goes to a good place, one goes to a bad place. What some would call heaven and others some would call hell. Yet in the Luke 16, neither place is called heaven, neither place is called hell. God doesn't appear in either place, and the devil doesn't appear in either place. And also, while we're on that subject, if you go to um, uh, other, I, I'm on. I mean, I mentioned it just because this is how you have to know have to remember to separate what Jesus says from what the rest of the Bible says. Because if you look further in the Bible and the other religion that arises after Christianity in 2 Corinthians, you see another, the other religion preaches, we're confident, yes, well, please rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Meaning once you die, you're in God's presence. That's not what happens at all. That's not what Jesus said at all. Yet that's what that religion preaches. And what people will thump a Bible and say, oh, that must be the case. We know that's not the case because uh, according to Jesus, Jesus himself, after he was crucified, didn't immediately get an audience with God. In Luke 16, neither one of those people there got an audience with God. And you see here an instance of where you have to decide, are you going to choose to be Christian and go by what Christ says? Are you going to choose to be whatever other religion you want to call it and label it? You may still label it Christian, but if it's contradicting what Jesus said, then it's anti-Christ. It's, it's anti-Christian. It's not Christian. 
you're still free to believe it, but you have to know that's not what Jesus said and put things in their lane. People are good at compartmentalizing, especially when they're sneaking around and doing dirt. You should compartmentalize there also and realize just because a preacher or church or whoever tells you something, uh, if it doesn't align, if you're a Christian, if it doesn't align with what Jesus actually said, then it's not Christian. You're still free to believe it, but know that it's not Christian and it doesn't actually pertain necessarily to your soul's salvation. So anyway, Jesus is um, saying that that's what the disciples are supposed to do. They're supposed to go forward with the message and make disciples of all the nations. That means carrying his words, not their own words, his words uh, forward and baptizing them in the name of the three. Um, not even how, I know people say the triune Godhead, but I'll just say in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, because um, that's what Jesus said. So um, Jesus is letting them know, letting us know that's sort of the great commission. Go and share the message, spread the word, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So that's how you know with red letter Christianity, for instance, how do you know that it's the authentic real deal uh, and not some other televangelist or mega church or other religion, whatever the case may be, whatever it is you believe. If you're a Christian, that's how you know. Because Jesus gave the disciples themselves specific instructions to teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That's those red letters. And like I've said a thousand times, probably or so, um, even if not on here, that um, that's what makes red letter Christianity, red letter Christianity. Because out of the 60 plus books in the Bible, only six of them have any red letters in them, meaning only six of them have anything that Jesus actually said in them. That's a tenth or a tithe, if you want to think of it that way, of the entire book of the Bible. So if you're going around evangelizing uh, people into Christianity, then shouldn't you be doing what the original disciples uh, are doing? Shouldn't you be doing what Jesus actually says to do? Teaching them to observe what he says, meaning those red letters, meaning the Gospels meaning uh, that's where our focus should be. And then he tells us, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Um, so clearly he physically departed from them. And, uh, but I think what he's letting us know in a Sims sort of way, that maybe the world is just a simulation that God enjoys tuning into or watching unfold, that even though he's not physically here with us, just like with the disciples when they were in the storm on the waters and thought they were going to drown. And, but Jesus was still there, but separated from them somewhere else sleep, but still with them. I think that's the same message Jesus is letting us know here. Physically, we may not be able to perceive that he's here with us, but he's still here with us in the same boat of life with us through the storms, through the rains, through the good times, through the sunshine. He's still with us, even though we don't necessarily perceive it all the time. And he's with us always, even to the end. That would be believers, Christians, actual faithful who observe the things that he commanded, not what one of the disciples says, not what your church tells you, not what your own mind or heart may be inclined to say and think and do as righteous, but what Jesus says. Because again, what Jesus actually says to do is very different than almost than all of the rest of the Bible. Sometimes he'll concur with orders given or um, commands given in the Old Testament 
for instance, what we call the Old Testament. But for the most part, Jesus's message is unique. And once you leave the Gospels, after that first chapter of the book of Acts, you don't see any more of Jesus's words in red letters if you have a New King James Version. If you don't have a New King James Version, it won't appear in red letters, but you won't see any more quotes of Jesus either. You won't see anything else saying, Jesus said this, Jesus preached that, Jesus taught this, Jesus said that. You won't see it because for the most part, Jesus's teachings, preachings, words, and quotes end at the book, first chapter of the book of Acts. And then that other religion steps in. And then you have the book of Revelation where it's questionable. Anyway, um, that's the end of this reading. I appreciate you checking it out with me and hope you'll join me again. It's Saturday, so we focus on the Gospels, those six books, or those four books with the Gospel preachings of Jesus and the other two that have some quotes attributed to Jesus in them uh, on Saturday nights around 12.15 a.m., early Sunday morning. Um, but on Mondays and Wednesdays, we focus on what we call the Old Testament and the rest of what the Bible has to say and sort of try to gain an understanding of how to, of reconciling the two because there are contradictions throughout the old, but that absolutely contradict what Jesus says in the new. And so that's what we do here on The Naked Truth. I hope you it was a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. The Monday and Wednesday readings are at random times. The Saturday night reading is pretty much the only scheduled one. Um, so I hope you'll join me again. The readings are available, um, past readings on here on this platform on Anchor. On my website, if you're an adult, you could check it out. It's hungtgirl.com. Explore the body, mind, spirit, and soul pages to get to know me, the messenger, better. Or explore explore the spirit and soul pages to see those archives of past readings. Some are in audio only, uh, but some are audio and video. So explore there and get a better understanding. See, read along with me in context so you'll know. I'm not trying to fool you. I have nothing to gain by doing that, nothing good to gain by doing that. Um, so that's not what I'm out to do. Uh, see for yourself. And in the meantime, um, Thanks again. Wear your mask, wash your hands, love your neighbor as yourself, like Jesus tells us, and be blessed. I'll see you next time. Thanks again. Peace.